Are we recording? Tell me when we start. Yeah, I will. All right. Okay, we're streaming. Steve Bluestein. All right, Steve. You got the name right. I'm impressed. Yeah, I know. The other show I was on, he called you Bruce Springsteen. I remember. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Amongst other things. Yeah. Well, I want, I want to catch up with you because I think you could be my therapist. Um, uh, <laughs> I've been going through a lot of stuff, but I want to get into you. And I want to do this interview because I'm going to lay this down. This is Steve Bluestein. He's been in comedy right. since 1972. Uh, he's been all around the comedy circuit. He played in like uh, huge arenas with uh, bands, and you know. And I always I read his his writings, Steve. I read your writings, and it, it always like comforts me. It soothes me. What to know that there's someone more screwed up than you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. And but there's I mean there's a lot of similarities between you and I as far as our past. But I wanna get I wanna find out how did you become Steve Bluestein? Well my parents screwed. What do you mean how did I become? <laughs> I always ask this question. But I mean when you were a little kid, something like uh clicked in you to be a comedian. You were always funny or No, no. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the the God's honest truth. Uh-huh. All my life I ever wanted to be was a veterinarian. Well. That's all I ever wanted to be from the time I was three years old. I love animals, and I wanted to be a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I come from one of the most dysfunctional families that was ever been created. And one day, I think I must have been six, uh-huh. and an uncle said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a veterinarian. He said, you want to be a veterinarian? Can you memorize an entire dictionary of medical terms? And being an insecure six-year-old, I said, no, I can't do that. And so my dream was taken away from me. And I didn't know what I wanted to be until I got into like high school, mm-hmm. where I noticed that people gravitated toward me because I was funny. Yeah, you were the, were you the class you, clown? You were the class clown then. No, I was not the class clown. I was, uh, I was always a, g- a good behavior. But outside of school, I was always the one that made people laugh. Mm-hmm. And when I got into college, it even got even better because I was in the theater department and I was able to develop those skills. And one night I went to college with Henry Winkler. Right. And one night we were sitting around and Henry handed me a, a, uh, a flip-flop, you know, those things you wear on your feet? Yeah. And he said, do something with this. And I did about 20 minutes with it, and people were screaming. And that's when I got the bug. That's when I decided this is what I could do. And so uh, right after college, I got a job on Cape Cod as a singing waiter. <laughs> really? We did, yeah, we did 35 shows a week and bust the tables. It was the greatest job ever. Is that like uh, and, that movie, like Dirty Dancing, where they like had people like in these, these uh, I don't know, was it the Catskills yeah. or something? Yeah, 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 exactly. We all lived together in cabins, and it was, it was pretty, pretty, uh, it was a lot of fun and a lot of work. 
but one night I we took a we took a boat out to Nantucket, and there was very rough seas, and we had trouble getting back, and we were late to to the show, and the producer said to me, handed me the microphone. And he said, "Explain to the audience what happened." Well, I I started telling the audience in my style what was happening that day, and they st- the audience started laughing. Right. And when they when they started laughing, this and this was the first time I had made an entire audience laugh at the first at the at the same time. When they, I said, I can do this. Okay, so I lived in New York for about four years, and I was working as a salesman at Alexander's Department Store, mm-hmm. and I kept getting promoted. And I eventually ended up in the buying office, and I was absolutely miserable. I mean, miserable. Well, I mean, if you can sell and yourself, if you can sell yourself in a department store and move up the ranks, then you can sell yourself to anybody, right? Well, I don't know about that, but I just, you know, I do have a talent for stuff, yeah, and I, they noticed it. I was so, a, I, was, so, I just want to get it. Go ahead. I want to get into this in a second, but go ahead. All right, so so a friend of mine, Ian Seberg, had moved, who I went to Emerson with, had moved out to California. I went out to visit him, mm-hmm. and as soon as I got to his place, I knew that this was where I belonged. And I went back to New York. I quit my job. I sold my apartment, and I took my dog, and we drove across country. And I moved into one of these... Hollywood apartment buildings where the, the apartments were all around the swimming pool. And again, when I would be b- down by the pool and I'd be making everybody laugh. Okay, wait, wait. Can I well, ask a question real quick? What year is this? This is like 1970. Oh, 70. Because so, I was thinking about like, like Mitzi Shore had like apartments for comedians and all that. It's way before that? Oh, that no, it's way before that. Okay. It's way before that. All right, keep going. So, so... As luck would have it, Dave Madden, who lived, who was Reuben on the Mr. Partridge family, yeah, he lived in the building, and he was a comedian. And he said to me, Steve, you could do this. You're funny. You could do this. And there's a new place, Sammy Shore just opened up. It's called the Comedy Store, uh-huh. and you should go down there. And Albert Hammond, who was the a famous songwriter also lived in the building prior to his fame. And he agreed. And the two of them brought me to the comedy store and I sat in the audience and I watched the comics and I said to myself, I can do that. And so the following week I went back on like amateur night. Mm -hmm. I did my set and Sammy Shore came up to me and he said, keep coming back. You've got the sound. You have the sound. Now, I didn't know what that meant, but... But what you said was in your style, but just really just being yourself. Yeah, I just, you know, I just talked to the audience. Yeah. So, uh, but if Sammy hadn't come up to me that night and said, keep coming back, I would have gone home and never tried it again. So, because, wow. you know, I, I, because of insecurity and stuff. Yeah. But I, so I did come back. 
And I became one of the comedy store regulars in the very beginning of the comedy store in 1971. And we, uh, we were the comedy store players. And, and at that point, Craig T. Nelson and Barry Levinson uh, and T- uh, Flip Wilson and Red Fox and uh, all these people. Kibidata? Were hanging. Kibidada, Kibidada, and I were were in the what we call the same the same class, mm-hmm. you know, graduating class. Mm-hmm. Kip was in the class, and uh, and George Miller, and um, I remember him. How about you? Don't, you how, don't remember? No, I do. I do. He like he had uh, yeah. like blonde hair, and he was like kind of a, right, he was right. like a frumpy guy. Yeah, he's from. He was from Seattle. He passed away a few years ago yeah. from leukemia. Wow. Um, and uh, Jeff Altman, and you know, and Johnny Dark. Uh, you know, it was a, it was like a family, you know. And then from there, I got picked up by ICM, and then I. That's the rest is history. I just started working. And you were working on television. Uh, but mainly what you were doing was going out on tour with bands and you were like opening, opening. Yeah, I, well, not so much bands. I opened for Frankie Valley, Donna Summer, Barry Manilow, Melissa Manchester, uh, Seals and Crofts, uh, you know, in Vegas. And then, and then in Reno and Tahoe, I opened for Kenny Loggins and Rita Moreno. And, you know, I, yeah. I just worked, I worked, it worked. How did, how did that, how did and, they, uh, Oh, choose you to be the the guy to go like the opening act. I mean, it was you have like your agent. Well, yeah, I happen? was with ICM, which was one of the biggest agencies in town, mm-hmm. and they would have a headliner like let's say uh, Kenny Loggins, and then they would pair me with Kenny Loggins because that would mean on that show the agency would have two clients bringing in money. Okay, and or so so that's how that worked. And, you know, and I, I got, always got good reviews, so I was a sure thing. But the strange thing that happened was in the mid-'70s, Vegas was in trouble, mm-hmm. and, and they stopped using opening acts, and they started using co-headliners. So it would be Joan Rivers and Johnny Carson or the Smothers Brothers and Bob Hope. You know, it would be like that. So... The opening act spots closed up, and I was forced to go on the road in the comedy clubs. And I went into the comedy clubs as a headliner, and I worked those comedy clubs for 10 years until I couldn't take it anymore. Did it pay the the bills? Did it pay the bills then? Oh, I I live in Bel Air. So, okay, the comedy, wow. So the comedy clubs did work. Back in the day. Yeah, well, I'm, but, well, listen, the comedy clubs paid me very nicely, mm-hmm. but I also uh, am no fool, and I invested everything I ever made. Okay. You know, I, you know, I bought real estate and art and antiques, and you know, because I watched my friends, other comedians, spend, you know, work a week, make five thousand dollars, and then blow it at the tables in yeah. fifteen minutes. Right. I mean, I've seen this with my own eyes. And I said to myself, I work too hard for this money. I'm not blowing it in Vegas 
in That's, 15 minutes. That was kind of my opening intro with you. I went to the 99 cent store today and, and I and I buy like uh stuff at garage sales and all that stuff. So that's where you, that's a lot of that is like what you did probably, right? Like you um well, I, I you know, I always lived within my means. I never lived beyond my means. But you didn't spend too, and, like you didn't go to like do you go to Starbucks and spend like $4 and a cup of coffee? Um, I would, I would, now I would, but okay. there wasn't a Starbucks back then. But back then, but you wouldn't like go out, you go to like Sambo's and get like a free coffee every day or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or I'd make it at home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. You were frugal. We got that. And then. No, I was, no, I was not frugal. I was smart with my money. There's mm-hmm. the big difference between being cheap and, and being an investor. I was investing the money that I made, not I never denied myself anything. I always had a good car. I always had a nice house. Uh, I always, you know, I I always worked. But being uh, like being a stand-up comedian, how did you learn to be an investor? I mean, how did you learn to how did you learn this because even like you said your family well, life, your family life wasn't that hot. How did you learn this? No, my family was just, Well, I I don't know how to tell you this, but there are things called books. Yes. And if you read them, then you can learn. And when I started to invest. I started with Charles Schwab, and I sat in on classes and learned, you know, the different kinds of investing. And and, and I started very small, and I built, you know, I built my portfolio up from there. Yeah. So okay. So you you didn't go out like the nightlife and like uh, you know partying and like no coke and I drugs. never I never was like that. I never. I mean, uh, maybe. You know, maybe in the beginning, you know, when I first transitioned from a nine to five job to where, you know, when it was exciting, mm-hmm. but after a while that becomes boring and, and I didn't, uh, there was no wild parties. So in the, co- in I'm the- very much, I'm very much a homebody. Yeah. Like that's what, you like a homebody. Understand- and then like in that comedy circuit, people would like try to like, uh, lure you out to go with them or you would just like. You like uh, put a line in the sand and said, "I don't do this." Yeah, I don't do this. The thing is, when you spend forty weeks a year on the road, traveling on a plane and living in a hotel room, the, when you get home, the last thing you want to do is leave the house. Yes. And and I couldn't. My mother couldn't understand why when I wasn't working, I wouldn't get on a plane and go visit her in Florida. Well, that's another issue. The, that's another issue you brought up. See, because I want to get into that your mother, because my mother's like bugging me to, to, oh man, she's bugging me bad. But here, like your mother, I didn't think you had a relationship like uh, communication with your mother all those years, because that's what I read. But maybe I was wrong. Well, no, I mean there were years when we didn't speak because uh, in the thirty-five or forty years that I uh, was doing stand-up, she never came to a single show, not one. As a matter of fact, when I asked her if she wanted, I went, uh, we were on tour with Seals and Crofts, and I was in Florida, and I said, did you want to come to the show? And her answer was, why? I don't like Seals and Crofts. I mean, the woman was non-supportive of my show business career from day one and continued that way till the day I died. As a matter of fact, I've written, I've written two books. Yes. And the last time I uh, last time she came out to California in the car going from the airport to my house, she said to me, 
What did you write a book for? Nobody cares about your life. <laughs> she thought you were like 12 years old or something. <laughs> yeah, like, what do you have to say? She had no idea of who I was, what I had done, where the people I had, you know, been with or, or you know, or the respect that I garnered within the industry. Yes. She had no, she didn't care because... As far as she was concerned, I was wasting my time. Didn't matter how much money I made or how much success I had. She was, you know, it, it wasn't what she wanted. Right. You can't convince her that, hey, look, it's not about you. It's about me. And she, it was always about what she wanted. I get it. This is what my mom does to me, too. Yeah, well, you know what I finally said to her? I said to her, look, you're going to uh, – if." If I do what you want, and I'll become an accountant, and I'll be miserable for the next 25 years, but you'll be happy. <laughs> then you'll die, and I'll live another 25 years miserable. miserable, but you will have died happy. I said, I'm not doing that. Yeah. This is my life. I have to live it the way I want to live it. And this is what I'm going to do. If I, if I succeed, I will, I will you know, garner the... Uh, the, the, the goals of my, of my success. And if I fail, at least I would have tried. But if I never try, I always would have said, why didn't I? Why didn't I try? Yeah, but how did your, like, your mother, like, did she ever leap into your comedy uh, routines? I mean, the stuff that you thought about, did it come from your childhood and, and all of the... Oh, well, you know what? You know what the truth of the matter is? My childhood was so painful and so... Uh, dysfunctional that I had to create uh, a character and a family that I talked about on stage that had nothing to do with my family. Because if I talked about what my family actually went through, mm -hmm. then, you know, there would be no laughs. There's They'd no... be taking up a collection for me at the back of the room. Right. You're like you're like the guy who like buys the frame at the uh, at like uh, Walmart and a picture of like a family and that's your family. You stick it on your right, desk. Right. Right. <laughs> and, right. And you explain them out. You know, you like name them and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Well, you know, when when my parents got divorced, my mother was on the verge of a nervous breakdown, so she took me to her to my aunt's house in New York. In New York. While we were in New York, my father came in and moved all the furniture out of the house and gave up the apartment. So when we came back to Boston, we were homeless. Hmm. So I had to, I, we lived in a car for a, 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 a couple of days. And then we moved in with my grandmother, who, because my mother was my grandmother's favorite. Yes. And because the marriage had failed and I was a result of the marriage, my grandmother hated my father and hated me for being representative of the of my father and so i as a child i was just tortured tortured she she treated you as an outcast because oh yeah. an outcast she used to make my life a living hell because of your cuz you were my you grandmother were, my grandmother your, oh your grandmother but you had a like, father's blood because because she hated your father, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Man, that must have been tough. It must have been happy to go to Los Angeles or uh, Hollywood or wherever and get out of there. Oh, you know the the joke I used to use was if my family moves one 
one block west, I'm moving to Hawaii. <laughs> So okay, like night. Let's get into the mid seventies and move forward. So oh, they, we've already been through the mid seventies. No, we haven't. There's more I want to talk about. Okay, okay. Let's talk about right, television. Go. Okay, were you ever on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? I wasn't on with Carson. I was on with a uh, guest host. Okay. He, oh, he had a guest host that night. Yeah. Okay. But I did. You know, I did all the other talk shows. I did. Um, I did uh, uh, Merv Griffin and and Phil Donahue and uh, uh, Mike Douglas and Dinah Shore and um, uh, John Davidson and you know and I think even Gomer Pyle had a talk show. I did that, you know. Yeah. Okay. I did the circuit. So we're like seventy-five to seventy-nine. That's what I'm thinking. And then you were on. Yeah. Make, then you were on Make Me Laugh on that TV show, and you had right. all those other comedians, uh, Bruce Baum, and yeah, I remember all that. Well, I I, w- I was on the episode with um, with Gallagher, yeah. and um, oh God, I can't think of his name now. He just passed away. Larry, Larry. Oh. Oh, not I, Larry David. No, 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 Larry. Oh my, I, I, I see his no, face too. His, his character, I think, it was Larry Sanders. He had a show, and uh, okay, I can't wait, think wait, of wait. no, no, no. Uh, the Larry Sanders show was with. Uh, oh my gosh. I know. See, this is how bad show business is. The guy's gone a year, and you can't even remember his name. That's bad. He was on with Sein- uh, Seinfeld. No, he wasn't on with Seinfeld. Well, they were good buddies. Okay, um, what was his name? Oh yeah, they they were yeah they were very good buddies. Hair, hold they were on. Very, um, well, I'll try to Google it while we're talking. I'm gonna do it too. Well, this <laughs> we is have, very interesting you know what? to your listeners. This is funny. We have we have to Google people's name to find out who he used to be. <laughs> like, he just passed away. <laughs> Gary Shandling, I got it before you. <laughs> That's it, Gary Shanley. And that was Gary's very first show. Yeah. That was his very first television show. He was a sitcom writer and he was backstage talking to me saying, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I said, You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah, and I, and, I, I've and actually that, watched I've actually watched some like interviews with him back in the day and he said he came from Phoenix, Arizona and he was just like a nobody. Yeah. It just like shows up and wow. And that that's what happens. Well, he was very talented, and he got very lucky, you know. And so, uh, so you know, and he, and he was a great guy. He was yeah. neurotic, but he was a great guy. Oh, that's funny. Are most comedians neurotic? Uh yeah, those are their good qualities. <laughs> and, and what? What? How did David Letterman uh, get into all this? David was um, David was a weatherman in Indianapolis. And he came to the comedy store. And, you know, some people just come along and they have a light inside them. And you know that they're going to be successful. One night at the comedy store, we're, I'm standing in the hallway and David comes up and he goes, Steve, I'm never going to work. And I looked at him and I said, David, you will be hugely successful long before I'm ever working. And I was right. Well, you I, know, another one, yeah, go ahead. another time... I was just passing through the room, right? Mm-hmm. Passing through the room. And Arsenio Hall was on stage. And I stopped and looked and said, who's that? 
And I knew that he had that light, that Arsenio was going was gonna to be another one who was going to take off. And that's without uh, TMZ and the media that we have today. I mean, that's the other problem. Yeah. That's like yeah. the media we have today, the TMZ stuff, and everybody's dirt is, you know, oh, man, I don't want to get, I'm going to get into this in a minute. But, okay, right. so, but he had the light. Okay, David Letterman had the light. And you had, you had the fourth, you know, foresight to see that David Letterman was going to be famous, but that comes from Dave Madden, who was on the Partridge family. But he gave it to you, too. He said you had the light. Yeah, Dave, yeah, Dave, Dave saw it in me, and so did Sammy. Sammy Shore. Sammy Shore. And I saw it in David. See, but the the problem is that I never really believed in myself because because of my upbringing, because no one ever believed in me. I mean, can you imagine ha- having a family that any of your accomplishments are just not acknowledged? Yep. And so it was debilitating to me. And so, you know, on a subconscious level, it was like, well, if they don't care, why should I? You know, and so, I, but I was smart enough to know that if I wasn't going to be, you know, as big as David Letterman or as big as uh, Jay Leno, then what I ought to do is make sure that I make myself financially secure. And that's what I did. Perfect. And you know what, Jay Leno... I mean, he wasn't uh, the nicest guy when it came down to getting jobs. He was like, he would throw you under the bus. Look, uh, I never heard that. I never heard that. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And I know that when Max Alexander was dying and and Jay heard about it, he called me up and said, I'm going to send you a check for $5,000 for Max. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Jay, you know, Jay has a heart, but you know, in the beginning, everyone's, it's like you're in a lifeboat and it's got a hole in it and it's sinking and everybody's in the lifeboat bailing as fast as they can to make sure that you get to shore. And that's what it's like to be in show business. You know, if you don't get it, I mean, I actually remember a story where, uh, Two roommates, one of which went on later to be a hugely successful film writer, uh, and his roommate, who is a a horrible human being and lives in Minneapolis now, Uh um, they were roommates. Well, the 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 screenwriter got a an audition call, but the other guy picked it up and. Never told him about it, and he went on the audition. Wow, that's yeah. the kind of stuff that happens. Yeah, you know, and and that's why when when I was writing the book, I wanted I wanted the people to understand because people only see the show business face, but the show business face is not necessarily who the person actually is. Right, and that's that's the you, way you, know that you get. Yeah, that's the, the and, way you get into show business. You have to have an alter, like an, I say alter ego. I don't know. An alter ego, right? Yeah, and and I wanted people to understand that that it's not all glamour and fun, but it's hard work and it's backbiting and the disappointments are monumental. Look, I was hired 
to co-star with Tina Turner in a weekly sitcom. Mm -hmm. I was the co-star. I was the, my character was the title of the show. I was also the writer, one of the head writers on the show. I was guaranteed 50 weeks, okay? Yeah. Employment. We're talking about about a half a million dollars in in uh, income. Uh, we shot one episode. Tina went on tour, and they said that we were going to come back. They were going to come back and finish the rest of these shows. Tina never came back, and the show folded, and I lost the job. But you were, I mean, guaranteed, you were guaranteed like a contract, right? Well, I, I was. I had a buyout, yeah. but it certainly wasn't. It certainly wasn't five hundred thousand dollars. Right. But but the, the the thing is to come so close to success. Yep. And you know, it's when Tina had just signed with her new manager, and her new manager didn't want her doing this television show, so she he pulled her out of it, and without her, the whole thing fell apart. But um, you were collateral damage. It's like it's like who cares about you, Steve Bluestone? Yeah, exactly, collateral. But I mean, and and the funny thing was, I was basically suicidal when I found out, and I called a, a dear friend who's a happens to be a uh, Beverly Hills shrink, and I I told her what was going on, and she said to me, "Well, Steve, at least you came close," and. That was exactly the right thing to say, because if she had said, oh, poor you, I'm so sorry that happened, she would have reinforced my feelings of failure. But by saying at least I came close, right. she made a negative into a positive. Which came from your childhood. You know, and that's, which came from your childhood. They would have, like, turned yeah, you to yeah. a failure, right. Right. And, and, and so that's why I've chosen to... Fill my life with those that that kind of people. Those kind of people. You know, I have a family of friends that is better than any real family I could ever hope to have. That's Truly. what I feel. I feel like that too. I mean, I don't feel like I have a family. That's the reason that you're my psychiatrist. Because, I mean, I've got people around me that I know, but they're like way better than my own family. That I don't know. They just say, "Yeah, what you do is a bunch of junk." You just like you like. Well, you know. You know what they say, you can't choose your family, but you can definitely choose your friends. Right. And, you know, I know I don't know if you know, but I'm just recovering from surgery. I, I had a little cancer, prostate cancer. And uh, I was literally overwhelmed by the outpouring of love by my friends. Flowers and cards and baskets of food and chicken soup and... I mean, and constant stream of visitors coming to, you know, to spend time with me. And I got an email from a cousin that said, sorry, you're going through this. Well, that's the reason I thought about you, because I saw you were going through all this. And then I thought, I mean, I've seen you did the Alzheimer's. Did that book ever come out, uh, the Alzheimer's book? No, what Alzheimer's book? You did a story no, I, about I, a story I wrote two books. I wrote. I've written two books. It's so hard to type with a gun in my mouth. You got that one. And Fifty Shades of Bluestein, and uh, the a, 
compilation of those two books will be coming out uh, in uh, in 2018 as a memoir memoir of a nobody. <laughs> so, um, but I think you're thinking about the play I wrote. Yeah, called, that's the one. Um, uh, not rest in pieces, right? No, not there rest was, in pieces. There's but, another one. Uh, Alt- Alzheimer's the comedy. That's the one. You never finished it. Yeah, I I finished it. You know, but you know, to try to get someone in uh, artistic director or uh, somebody to read your plays. Mm-hmm. L- let me give you an example. The head of the UCLA theater department bought the house two doors down from me. So we had a block party, and I was introduced to him. And what do you do? I'm a playwright, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'm in the theater department. He said, I'd love to read what you've written. So I I sent him two plays. That was last July. He hasn't read them yet. Wow. You know, and that's rampant throughout the industry. They, and that's why when in the theater, they do revivals because they, they've revivals at least have a track record and it's a given. And to try to get something new done is you might as well bang your head up against the wall, you know, and I've had a couple of productions, but, but this is okay. This is, uh, like the last couple of days, everybody's trying to paint me into a corner to do a show about Corey Feldman, Corey Haim, and uh, Charlie Sheen, and all this stuff going on, and, you know, Wein- was his Weinstein, or whatever his name is. Weinstein, and, yeah. Weinstein. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen. I got it. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, all this stuff coming down, and all these, like, pedophiles and, and creepy people, I mean, it's always been around, right? And it's like, now, why do I have to, like, cater to all this? I don't want to. Well, you know, I kind of feel left out because no one has ever molested me. So never, exactly. I've never been molested either. I feel like I'm, you know, it's like, but as a badge of honor. What's wrong to, with me? It's a badge of honor to be molested. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. And, and like, I, I had an interview uh, a couple days ago with Scott Schwartz. He was, like, in the toy with Jackie Gleason and, uh, uh, what's his Oh, name? yeah. And, uh, oh, hold on, I just forgot. He's a comedy guy. What's his name? Black. Guy. Yeah, uh, I know who you mean. Yeah, I know yeah. who you mean. But anyways, I had a. Uh, uh, this Richard, is like an. Richard. This is like an Alzheimer's interview. Richard. The Richard two of Pryor. us can't remember a you single know, name. Richard Pryor. Yeah. Richard uh, Pryor. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I can't remember his name. And I got to Google him. Um, but here's, <laughs> you know, it's like, and he says, "Well, they they said this, they said that, and it's like." He said, he said, oh, then you got the other guy. The other guy who just like, oh, man, it's like, it's like too many people. Ugh. All these molesters. I have no idea. I have no idea what you just said. The molester guys that are coming out in the papers now, in the, in the media. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, he just lost his television show. Who did? Some guy that was a molester. He like he like tried to molest this young boy at sixteen or something. He was on a movie set with him. Oh, that was um, <laughs> that was um, Spacey. Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey. Right. It's like they just keep you know coming. he used to come. He he used to come to the comedy store in the early days. He was a stand up. Did impressions. Yeah, but but this is like it's all about this in the media today. Yeah, I know. Well, it's, it's about to. I have a theory too that 
you know, how Washington is so anti uh, left wing and they call it left wing Hollywood and the fake fake news and stuff. I have a theory that suddenly all this molestation stuff is coming up as a as flack for what's going on in Washington. Oh, which, wow. You, you think that like Trump is setting this up so that uh, they can like expose all these left wingers? Yeah. I do. I don't think uh, maybe the CIA. I don't know. I don't know. I have no proof. It's just, you know, just uh, a thought. But uh, I think it's coincidental that suddenly all this stuff is exploding when, you know, we have a a fiasco in the White House. Yep. It's like uh, diversion. It's diversion of uh, what's going on. But I'm not saying I I agree or disagree. I'm kind of in the middle. I don't care. But I mean, you're really a staunch. You well, let's just say you hate Donald Trump. So I get that. No, I, I don't. I wouldn't say I hate Donald Trump. I would say I detest Donald Trump. All right. And uh, the reason the reason I I I do is because and, and it's very funny. I never liked him. I never liked him in his interviews. I always found him to be pompous and self-involved and and arrogant. And then I never watched The Apprentice for the same reason, mm-hmm. because I found him to be arrogant and, you know, and self-important. But I then met somebody who worked with him on The Apprentice mm-hmm. and yeah. who told me what a major a-hole he was, what a, a narcissist, what a evil, mean man he was. And that validated my feelings all along. But for him to become the president of the United States is is one of the biggest travesties that this country has ever seen. Yeah, but he wasn't, am, he wasn't supposed to become the president. That wasn't. It's like it just happened. And it's like, and that's why Hillary is trying to backpedal and say, you know what, all this stuff that she did would have never come to light that's just uh, explain that that's what i'm thinking what what i heard i i don't i you know i don't know what hillary did yeah i i don't know but i do know that 16 agencies uh intelligence agencies have said that russia interfered in the election Mm -hmm. and trump refuses to acknowledge it i do know that six women have come out against roy moore in alabama and Trump refuses to uh, distance himself. But again, that's another it. molestation stuff. I mean, that's that's the same thing that's coming out now. It's everywhere you turn. That's where it's at. I understand, but I, I, I you know, a, a president is supposed to inspire, and is supposed to lead, and is supposed to soothe, soothe the the nation when you know when things are bad. And we have a president that fights with the widow of a of a fallen soldier, or uh, or when uh, we have a mass shooting, refuses to acknowledge that there's uh, a problem with guns in this country, and we have a president who you know is more in is more interested in having his ego massaged than doing something for the country. That's, you that's, know, that's it. This, this, tax bill, this tax bill is all about the rich. It's all about 
giving money to the rich and the, and this trickle down theory. Well, you know, when Reagan was in office, Reagan used the trickle down theory and after 8 years People were rioting in the streets because it didn't trickle down. They were the ones that were uh, being that taking the brunt of it, and they got frustrated and they rioted. Remember when Cal- when Los Angeles was in was in was in fi- on fire? Yeah, it yeah. was because people couldn't take it anymore. What happens with the trickle down theory is that the money goes to the top and it stays there. Well, that, yeah, Rodney. You know, it's a, yeah, Rodney King. I remember all that. Right, exactly. Well, the, the thing is, like today, uh, our government. I don't say. I thought the reason that Donald Trump got elected is because he's a good showman. I mean, he's a good showman. He, I mean, he. He's a good showman. That's it. But I don't need a showman in the White House. I need well, a state. You got. You got one. <laughs> well, and you, I, you got one. I, no, I. No, I don't have a statesman. I have I have a I have a joke in the White House. Yeah. I mean, did you see today? He couldn't even find the water for his for his speech. I mean, he's just he's he, uh, he's seventy something. It's years. an he's embarrassment. Seven. My friends in Europe are are calling me and saying, "What the hell is going on in your country?" And I say to him, "As soon as I find out, you'll be the first to know." But do you think that he's already like thought in his mind? He's seventy something years old. You know that Pence is going to take over for him if anything happens to him. So he—that's the reason he picked him. Well, yeah, I mean, but Pence is no walk in the park either. Mm-hmm. You know, I, he's a re- religious zealot, and um, the thing is, with Obama for eight years, we had social progress. We had, we saw things happening that had never happened before on a positive level. People, people loved that man, except the ones who were racist and hated him. But for the most part, people loved that man, and he was elegant. He was, he was intelligent. He was Harvard educated. Did you ever listen to the moron we have now mispronounce speech or misspell in his tweets? Where W H E R E instead of W A. W E compartiently R E. I've seen it. I mean, yeah, it's it's a but, it's a travesty. But, but, to, it's the, a you travesty. Say, but you say it's a travesty to me. I'm just gonna say this. It's like me. I misspell things and I tweet them. And I guess he's the president. He should have somebody like check his tweets. I mean, before he like sends them. Duh. Out. <laughs> you know what? I misspell every all the time. But I'm not the president of the United States. Yeah, but you're not the president of the United States. <laughs> right. I, he has to be checked. But, look, he is who he is. It's, you know, I don't know. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You just can't, like, don't get depressed over it. I'm not depressed over it. Not at all. Um, the, the the elections are coming next year, and I have I have great faith in the United States that the Democrats will take over the House and Senate, and and John, and McC- we'll and John really, McCain will be we'll dead. Really John McCain's another one; he'll be dead next year. So good, get riddance for him. I, uh, <laughs> I know I wasn't a, a McCain supporter, but he certainly gained my respect. Oh, he did no for for, ha- for having the balls to stick up, you know him and and uh, no, Blake he- and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name. I think it's Connor. Right, uh, but for for having the balls to stand up 
and and say what everybody else has been thinking that we have an incompetent president. Yeah, but there's they also have a rift between them. They don't like each other. No, they hate they well, I mean uh Trump said about McCain that he was captured and he likes winners. Mm-hmm. I mean, how how stupid. How you know, and now he expects McCain to back his asinine bills. You know, the one thing the one thing that Trump is doing is if Obama was connected to it, Trump's job is to erase it. Yep. You know, every single thing, every single piece of legislation that Obama passed through, Trump is reversing. And it is only because of the press conference when Obama uh, gave Trump a good lashing, you know, at the press conference, at the press dinner. And Trump was so humiliated. But Trump also said, said, he goes, look, if if you're my enemy, you know, you like screw with me, I'll screw you 10 times over and you're going to find out. Right, exactly. Exactly. And that's exactly what he's doing. But that's what you do in high school. That's not what you do when you run a country. Well, he does. (laughs) That's what he does. Yeah, that's why he's well, a show. That's why he's a showman. I mean, he, look. But I, I actually like it in a sense. Look, I, I'll just say this: I don't support anybody. I just support what, like, there's Bill Clinton was a womanizer. Okay, you, you gotta be with, you gotta agree with that. I mean, whatever they do, they do. That, huh? That was twenty years ago. It doesn't matter. Twenty years ago, it still happened. And then somebody like 20 years from now is going to go, hey, look at uh, Trump 20 years ago. I mean, it's going to always be in the record books. It's all it's all the scoreboard into the game. What's the score? Mm. That's what I think. I think it's the scoreboard. Well, all I know, all I know is that when Clinton was in office, the stock market went through the roof. When Reagan was in the office, we had a recession. <clears throat> and it's and their economic theories are the Republicans' economic idea of economics is to give money to the rich and hope that they pass it out to the poor. And the Democrats' idea is to give money to the middle class so that the middle class can build and buy and create. But when you say... And I, I, be, and I believe in that. I believe that that's the way the economy grows. I don't, because I've seen first, firsthand, I've seen firsthand how people... You know, they get their money and they keep it. You know, and not everyone is a is a benefactor. Right, but when you keep saying like when the Clinton was like, come on, that's when the internet bubble started, and and then you have like the uh, real estate bubble started, and now I don't know all these bubbles, and it's like all these like evil people like below that are like uh, they already know they're going to screw you out of your money, and then it comes like five years well, of trying to recoup. That's right, and and Obama put in regulations. So that stuff like that wouldn't happen. And Trump took them out. So that the banks and the real estate people and Wall Street can do it to the, to do it to the public again. So we're going to have another bubble somewhere. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, you know, right now, we're, I, I think we're due for a correction any day now. The last two days, the market's been down. Like today, I think it was 
152 points. Yeah, it's like 20. Well, how, how long is this interview, by the way? Just We're just talking as friends, I guess. I don't know. Hey, you, you, want, you can tell me if you want me to stop. I mean, I just want to talk to you. No. It's like, you're like my therapist. Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, even a therapist stops. Okay. What do you have any? Uh, let's get off politics. What else right. do you want to ask me about? All right. The last thing I want to ask you about. Okay, so you okay? You've got your operation. Uh, mm. Tell me about your books and like where we can get them. Uh, you've got. Uh... Go ahead, well, Mike. the books are uh, the books are off market now because we pulled them off because we're waiting for the new book to come out in 2018. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm sure that one was called It's So Hard to Type with a Gun in My Mouth, and the other one was called 49 and a Half Shades of Bluestein. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got the nicest note the other night from uh, a friend who told me that someone had called them to tell them that their mother was dying, and she was maybe had a week left to live. Mm-hmm. And the person wanted my friend to tell me that his, his mother has my book by her bedside and that whenever she gets a little depressed, she picks up my book and she reads it and she starts laughing and it makes her feel better. And I have to tell you, that was the nicest thing I ever heard in my entire life. Right. That validated everything I wanted to do with the book, and it also once again made my mother wrong. Right, and that's, because, that's 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 how we're going to end the interview. The Steve Blue Steve Bluestein. Okay, here's the end of the interview. My mother is seven, going to be seventy four years old uh, this next week. Okay, mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. bugs the hell out of me. She, I can't stand mm-hmm. her anymore. I don't even want to talk to her. She's like this religious mm-hmm. fanatic. She's crazy. She has schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. She's like dementia. She has all these cr- all these things. And my the end of this. You know what I said? Wait, wait, stop! I said to my doctor, "My mother has dementia," and he said, "Oh, I'm sorry." I said, "No, no, no! It's great. She's forgotten that she's disappointed in me." Mm-hmm. So the way we're going to end this interview is, yeah, uh, my mother, Steve Blue Sign, is like wrapped it all up in a little ball. And like, and like the way he feels about his family and his mother. But I cannot. Did you shed a tear when your mom passed away? I cried like I cried for weeks. And I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. Good, bad, or indifferent. She was a constant in my life from day one. Yeah. You know? And I said to a friend, I'm sure there are people that miss Auschwitz. But I, I, that constant, that, that one person who's supposed to be your special connection, um, is, you know, when I got the cancer diagnosis, mm-hmm. I wanted so desperately to pick up the phone and call my mother. Yep. And but I don't she know. Wasn't, and, but she She's wasn't not there. there. She's not there. But on the other on the other side of the coin, about a year after my mother died, um, I was with a grunt bunch of friends, and I, and they said, "Steve, how you doing?" I said, 
I haven't been this great in years. I said, I really feel terrific. And one of my friends said, sure, your mother's dead. Wow. And we all laughed. Yeah. We all laughed. But there was truth in that because I never again had to get one of those phone calls that took me a week to get over. Or I never again had to hear things like, what did you write a book for? Nobody cares about your life. I never have to hear, I just don't find you funny. You know, I, 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 you know, I never have to hear those things again. That and that's like a weight off my shoulders. It's the negativity. And I, I want it to go away. But when it does go away, how am I going to feel? Well, like I said, uh, yep. I, I said for years, when she dies, I'm not going to shed a tear. She died and I completely fell apart. And no one was more surprised than I was. Elaine Boozler called me and said, I don't understand this. You hate your mother. Why are you crying? I said, I have no idea. I said, and then I figured it out. It was because of that constant thing. It's like, you know, you have a pair of socks for 10 years and they get a hole in them. You miss them when they're gone. Yep. Well, this, this woman was a, was a, um, a constant in my life. She's a thread, and, a thread to your life. Even and even I, the negativity, it like maybe it like gave you something to move on and like like do better. I don't right, know. exactly, exactly. And I I, I said that um, I just I just missed the the constant. You I'm know, right. I missed the constant. And I think not that, so much the person. Yeah, I know. I not think, so much the person. Right. And I think yeah. I'm going to go through that. That's the reason of the interview for today with Steve Bluestein, because I, though I want to get into your past, but I also like your, I like your writings, I like your books, I like everything you do. But I'm in this like weird position now that if my mom goes, how am I going to feel? And then you just gave it to me right there. Well, you're, yeah, you're going to cry, you're going to grieve, and then you're going to move on. Yeah. I mean, what else can you do? Yeah. But you know, the the interesting thing is that. I had a cathartic experience with my mother, and it's a long story, and I won't go into it. Okay. But I was able to forgive her, and I and I began to understand that she really was sick, in a in a demented kind of way, in the kind of way that she never should have been a mother because she just didn't get that gene. That's my mom. She didn't get the mothering gene. Mm -hmm. She said she loved me. But she never was able to show me. Right. So I grew up completely confused because you, when you tell somebody you love them, but you don't show them that you love them, then, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a conflict. That's right. But I, under, I, I got to understand that. And I also was able to forgive her for that. And when she was on her deathbed, I said to her, I forgive you. I forgive you. And I was able to let her go. And, you know, and... We did it. That's my advice. That's my advice to you. I know. Just know, just know that she's just a person. She's got her own demons. She's not out to, <laughs> to hurt you. She pisses me off. I like, oh, yeah, well, she don't of bet. course, they all piss us off. Right, right, right. Well, right. I, you know, I was in, I, I was in a... Uh, a doctor's office once and I was talking to a friend, you know, we were sitting catty corner and there was a third woman on the other side of my friend 
we were talking about my mother and things my mother was doing and discussing it. And the woman reached over and she said, I'm sorry, but I couldn't help but overhear what you're discussing. I said, oh, I'm sorry. We were so loud. And she said, no, no, no. Let me just tell you one thing. If someone, if a mother says there's something wrong with the child, Mm -hmm. then there's something wrong with the mother. And it was the most profound thing that had ever been said to me because I got it. Yep. I got it. No mother finds fault with their own child. Well, my mom, you know, my mom, this is the reason I want to talk about this at the end. My mom said she wished she never gave birth to me because I irritate her so much. That's that. that came yeah. And I'm sure and I'm sure that's great for your psyche. I'm sure that's exactly what you want to hear. It's that's so painful. Mm -hmm. That is so painful to hear, you know, but you, you just have to forgive her for stuff like that because there's obviously something wrong. Obviously. We did the interview. That's it. You made me happier today. All right, good. So we, did, we, did, we, did, we did one hour. We did one hour, and that's good. And you can go back and recuperate. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Uh, okay, Steve. Uh, Where is it going to – will you put a link on Facebook? Of course. So I mean, I can, no, uh, we're going to put it up on my page. It'll be the Trevor's Happy Hour interview with Steve Bluestein. Well, uh, put a, put it on my, my wall as well, I all will. right? Because I'll never I'll never find it. I will. I think we like hit on every, well, pretty much everything. I don't know what else we could do. Let's go. Let's like uh, just. All right. Well, good night. Right, good. Take care. And uh, this is Trevor's Happy Hour. You can call me at 9 p.m. tonight, 714-798-9806. And I'm going to play this uh, tonight. Thanks, Steve. All right. Thanks a million. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.